back in Hebrews this morning. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And we're actually going to cover verses 1 through 25 this morning, amazingly. So Hebrews chapter 10, we'll look at verses 1 to 25. Hebrews chapter 10, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, please stand. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. Then we're going to drop down and read verses 22 to 24. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 6. And then we're going to drop, drop down and look at verses 22 to 24. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Now drop down to verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Lord, we thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you for our church. Lord, please be with us this morning as we study your word. Uh, please help us focus on that, Lord. Please help me. Please please guide my tongue, guide my thoughts, Lord. If there's things in my notes you want me to, to skip over, Lord, just please help my eyes not see them, Lord, and give me the words you want me to add. Again, be with us in this message this morning, Lord. And just thank you again for our church. In the name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. The title of our message this morning, Let's Get Busy, Let Us In. Let's Get Busy, Let Us In. Uh, you'll find in this message I've created a couple words. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get on and we'll, we'll, you'll notice that. But one of the words I created in study this message is let us in. Let us in. So let's get busy, let us in. So we're now, we're now in the Hebrews, now into Hebrews chapter 10. In this chapter, we find the writer offering proofs again from the Old Testament that the Old Testament sacrifices was never God's desire. Uh, our passage actually says that twice in verses 6 and verse 8. Uh, the law God gave to Israel was designed to expose weakness. Uh, it, was designed, it was designed as a, as a shadow or a trailer of coming attractions like we mentioned a couple weeks ago. And we know that the law required sacrifices for sin to be repeated over and over again. And that repetitiveness emphasized that the sacrifices were not solving the problem of sin. That is why the worshipers in Israel never felt their conscience cleansed by those sacrifices. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. That's chapter 10, verse 1 to 2. So the old covenant uh, sacrifices lacked the power to bring men into a right relationship with God. Instead, they just reminded men over and over again, uh, we're sinners, sin requires death. Uh, the law was not solving that problem of sin requiring death because we did it over and over again. We had to sacrifice over and over again. So. 
it just served the point to just point them like, we need something different. We need something better. We need a permanent solution to the, our problem of sin. So since God designed the old covenant to use animal sacrifices, and obviously God never intended that old covenant uh, to sacrifices to address our sin because sin requires you your death. This sin requires the death of a man, the death of a perfect man in our place. Sin does sin. Uh, animals can cover that, but only Christ can pay for that. Only Christ can can solve man's sin problem with our faith in Christ. So God designed the old covenant to, to show that this is temporary. Something better has to come along. This was a temporary solution, a temporary covering. They did not pay that these offerings did not pay sin's debt. Uh, verses 3 and 4, But in those sacrifices there is remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Only Christ's blood, only Christ's shed blood, only Christ's death on the cross can take away those sins. So I want to take for a moment to look at uh, verses 2 and 3 in our passage here. And I want to especially look at the last part of verse 2 and then verse 3. Once purged should have had no more conscience of sins, but in those sacrifices there is remembrance again made of sins. We're going to focus on these verses on application to ourselves. Uh, we're not going to dig too deep into what they mean in the, in the context necessarily for the original Hebrew audience. We've, we've kind of covered that abundantly up to this point. So now I want to just focus on some application just to us with this thought. Once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is remembrance again made of sins. So notice the writer is telling us that if we have been cleansed from sin, uh, we should have no more conscience of sins. If we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, there should be a remembrance again made. There should, be, there should not be a remembrance again made of sins in our life. So if we are saved, if we believe the Bible and what the Bible says, and in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, then there should not be a perpetual remembrance of our sins in our minds, in our consciences, in our souls. Uh, the Bible also tells us that God forgets our sins. He buries them in the deepest ocean. So if all that is true, and we know that it is true, because that's what the Bible says, when the Bible is the ultimate source of truth in the universe, then we should have no more conscience of sins. If we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, there should not be remembrance again made of sins in our life once they are truly confessed, once they are truly under the blood. So what am I getting at? What is this getting at? What, what is the point here? We should not beat up ourselves over our sins continually over and over again if we have asked forgiveness for them and they are truly forgiven and they're under the blood. We should not continually beat ourselves up over them over and over again. If we failed somewhere in the past, we committed a great sin, it's under the blood, it's forgiven, we know it's forgiven. Don't let the devil keep bringing that up. But you messed up big time at one time. 20 years ago, you did that. How, how do you think you could go about your life? How do you think you can go to church? How do you think you could do this and hold your head up high? You have that in your past. You shouldn't be doing that. You have that in your past. Don't let the devil do that to us. Once purged, should have no more conscience of sins, but in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again. We should have no more conscience of sins. If we have asked for forgiveness of them, don't beat ourselves up over them. If we have truly asked for that forgiveness, 
who've received that forgiveness, they're under the blood. Don't let the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself, constantly bring those sins up into your mind that are under the blood and tell you you are worthless because of those sins, that you should, you should forever be ashamed because of those sins and those spiritual failures, that you can never do anything for God because of those sins or spiritual failures, that you should just withdraw from church and withdraw from God's people and because of those sins and spiritual failures of the past that are already forgiven, already under the blood. God remembers them no more, but the devil tries to get us to dwell on that, to bring us down. The devil may try to say something like this to you in your conscience, your inner being, in your mind. He may say something like this. Why bother trying to live for the Lord? Why bother reading your Bible? Why bother trying to live uh, by God's teachings and principles? Why bother trying to to live a separated and holy life? Why bother? Look at what you did. Look what's in your background. Look at all those mistakes, all those sins you have in your past. Look at all those regrets you have. Look at, just keep feeling guilty. Just keep feeling guilty. Just keep moping around about it. Don't bother trying to live for the Lord. You're too guilty. Just keep dwelling on that, those mistakes and your, those sins. Just, just keep feeling guilty. And if he can keep us feeling guilty, he can keep us sitting and not doing anything for the Lord. Because we feel guilty. We feel like we can't do anything for the Lord. We feel like I'm worthless. I have this in my past. I made this mistake. I can't do anything. What, how, could I, how do I think I can do something for the Lord? But if they're truly forgiven, they're under the blood, we can get busy serving the Lord. Look at the Apostle Paul. Look what he had in his past. Did he mope around and think about that and say, well, I persecuted Christians. I was at the stoning of Stephen. You know, I, I, I'm responsible for the deaths of Christians. I can't do anything for God. Jesus made a mistake when he, he, he met me on the road. and I, I can't. Obviously, he doesn't remember what I did, so I can't do anything for him. No, that's what the devil wants us to think. That's what Satan wants us to think. That's what Satan wants us to believe. But look at what God is telling us through the, the writer of Hebrews. God is telling us the exact opposite. God is telling us, don't think that way. Don't let Satan keep that guilt in your mind, keep you dwelling on those things that are under the blood, when all that's already forgiven. And if you think it should not be forgiven, I don't think God should forgive me for that. That's just too horrible of a sin. It does not matter what you think. It only matters what God says. It does not matter what we think. It only matters what God says. And he says if you confess it, you are forgiven it. You have been cleansed from sin, and we should have no more conscience of sins that are under the blood, that are forgiven. Jesus frees us from that guilt. He frees us from the guilt of our sins. Don't let the devil try to put you back into that, that, that enslavement of that guilt uh, the, that he just keeps trying to plant back into your conscience. You have been forgiven. You've been made free by the blood of of the Lamb. Believe 1 John 1, 9, then live a joy-filled life in Christ. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to believe that. Believe that truth. Don't let the devil enslave you with the perpetual conscience of your sins. I did that. That's in my past. I can't do anything for the Lord. I did that. That's in my past. I can't do anything for the Lord. I did that. That's in my past. I can't do anything for the Lord. And pretty soon we're sitting down, we're on the sidelines. We may come to church every once in a while, but we're out of the picture. The devil doesn't have to worry about us doing anything for the Lord anymore. Don't let the devil enslave you with that conscience of your sins. Don't let the devil keep 
that constant remembrance of your sins again and again. Plead the blood. Tell Satan your sins are under the blood and let Jesus lift that guilt off of you and you can live that joy-filled kind of life the Lord wants us to live. The Lord wills for us to live. Our next solution to the problem of sin was the Messiah. Now, I think we may have experienced just a little bit of spiritual warfare this morning. Satan is the prince and the power of the air. And he blocked us from getting this message out. I think this message is needed. I think we experienced that this morning. I think, I think, I think he was involved in that. Next, the solution to the problem of sin was the Messiah. Look at verses 5 to 10. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me, and burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. God never intended to, for our, our, to solve the sin problem through the old covenant sacrifices. He told Israel in Scripture the solution was the Messiah. The Lord says he did not desire sacrifices to solve the problem of sin. Instead, the Lord prepared a human body for a son to occupy, and in that body the Son of God would do the, the will of the Father, then in pleasing the Father by laying down his life, the Son would provide that true solution for our sin. He would become that sacrifice that pleases the Father. So out with the old, so we can have the new. Notice verse 9 again. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. God had taken away that old covenant. He had to take away that old covenant so he could bring in the new covenant, so he could establish the new covenant. And that new covenant can take away our sins permanently. That new covenant can cleanse our sins, can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now the star of the new covenant, God's Son, Jesus Christ, lays down his life for us in the climax of redemption, he pays our sin debt. He cleanses us from sin's penalty through the application of his own blood, by the which we are all sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, verse 10. Notice, it is a once for all sacrifice. It's not a perpetual sacrifice. It's a once for all sacrifice. The sacrifice of a perfect man in our place was done once and suffices for all. You cannot improve upon perfection. Uh, God will not let us pay more than 100% of our sin debt, and 100% of our sin debt has already been paid by Jesus Christ. It is a once-for-all sacrifice, not a perpetual one. Notice we are sanctified through Christ. Verse 10 tells us we have been sanctified, made holy by the offering of the body of Christ. This is, uh, this is what is referred to as a positional holiness or positional sanctification. We have been positionally made holy or positionally sanctified by the offering of Jesus' own body, but we still need to work out through our whole human earthly life toward that practical sanctification, that practical holiness in our own life. Uh, you know, you cannot be more acceptable to God than when you are accepted to God through the death of Christ in our place. We cannot be any more acceptable to God than that. But if you've not accepted the sacrifice of Christ, then there is nothing you could ever offer God. 
No work, no sacrifice, no prayer. Nothing will satisfy God's wrath for your sin except the death of a man, except the death of a perfect holy man, the death of the perfect holy Son of God without spot or blemish. We can either, we have two, two options here, we can either try to eternally satisfy God's wrath in the fire and torments of hell, and if we stayed there in hell for a trillion years, we would fall eternally short of paying our sin debt. Or we can accept that payment made on our behalf. Our sin debt can only be paid by Christ's death. Our acceptance of that payment made on our behalf through the grace of God by faith. That's our, our options. We, can, we could suffer in the torments of hell for a million, trillion years and still have a million, trillion, trillion, trillion years to go to pay our sin debt. Or we can just accept the payment made on our behalf through God's grace by faith. That's our choices. No works are required for salvation. Look at verses 11 to 18. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he hath said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I put my laws into their hearts and in their minds while I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. One last time, the writer of Hebrews uses a comparison between the old covenant uh, to reinforce his point. He says, consider the ways priests were required uh, to serve God in that earthly tabernacle. They stood in the tabernacle working to make sacrifices all day. They stood because their work never ceased. They stood for there were no chairs in the tabernacle because it was a continual working. They stood for their work was perpetual because those sacrifices not put an end to sin. But guess who was not standing? Once for all sacrifice, Jesus Christ. He made that sacrifice for us and he sat down on the right hand of God. No standing for him. No continual work for a sacrifice. The New Testament sacrifice, New Covenant sacrifice was made once. Uh, it tells us the Lord was pleased by that sacrifice for all time. When Christ died in our place, he was welcomed back into the heavenly realm by the Father. And the Father permitted his Son to sit down on his right hand. Sitting down signifies that work of redemption is complete. It was finished. Sin debt was paid in full. The scriptures testify that Christ is finished in his work and is merely waiting, verse 13, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. He's just waiting for the footstool. He's sitting. Now by one offering, look at verse 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. This verse is the climax of the writer's point. By one offering the Father has perfected for all time uh, all those who are being sanctified. So, so as I like the word things sometimes, let's, let's look at this backwards. I have a tendency of stating things that, to my mind, it seems logically stated, but Melissa's like, that's backwards. You said that backwards. So we're going to look at this verse backwards. So let's look at the last part first. Them that are sanctified. This refers to a group of people across history 
that are sanctified. Now let's look at are sanctified. That is written in, in the original language in a present continual tense, which means it's a continuous action extending on into the future. Are sanctified. It means being set apart for holiness, being sanctified by God, the one day after our death or the rapture to become perfect and sinless. The one day see that positional holiness become our actual possession, our actual holiness in our life. It is stated as a present continuous tense because God is in the process of making believers. He didn't stop at any point. He's in the process of making believers. He's in the process of bringing us through that sanctification process in our life. He's in the process of making believers. He's in the process of sanctifying us. Notice, for by one offering he hath perfected forever. One day we will be fully sanctified. No more sin, and what a day that will be. I can't wait for that. I feel like Paul so much, so often. The things I would do, I do not. The things I do, I wish I did not. I can't wait till that day. No more sin. No more sin. And that's all made possible by one offering, that is Christ. There's no other means by which we can be brought in that perfection. For by one offering, which is what Christ did for us, he hath perfected us forever. It's not by our own works. It's not by our participation in religious rituals. It's not by keeping religious traditions or rules, but only by the one sacrifice of Christ. And once again, that plan of salvation was something announced in advance by the prophets, even as the old covenant was still operating in Israel. Verses 16 and 17 again, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and their minds while I write them, and their sins and iniquities while I remember no more. In verses 16 to 17, the writer is quoting from Jeremiah 31, uh, verses 31 to 33, and we work through uh, Jeremiah 32 and Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 30 and 31 over several weeks, just a couple months ago. Uh, we, we taught through that as part of our study here in Hebrews. And that prophet Jeremiah said a new covenant would come to Israel and ultimately to all nations. When the Lord gave that promise, he said this new covenant would not be like the old. It would be different. So how would it be different? It was different because this covenant Lord would not remember sins. He'd forget the sins of the people. No more remembrance of sins. No more conscience of sins. No more remembrance of sins. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. So not, not only no more remembrance, no more conscience of sin, no more offering of sin. The once for all sacrifice paid for that sin, paid for our sin debt, and we can trust Christ, trust God, trust Christ by faith through his grace. We get permanent forgiveness. Not a yearly covering, but permanent forgiveness of sin. Now, now let's get to the heart. Let's just get to where I've been wanting to get to. Now let's get busy, let us in. Let's get busy, let us in. Verse 18 marks the end of the doctrinal section of the book of Hebrews. Everything up to this point has been doctrinal in nature. So for nine and a half chapters, the writer of Hebrews has been teaching doctrine. Doctrine, doctrine, comparing the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Doctrine, doctrine, telling us how much superior, how much better, how much greater Jesus is. But he's just been loading us with doctrine. And then now from verse 18 on or verse 19 on, it's kind of application. Applying what we've learned in the rest of the book of Hebrews. So that, that's the section we're starting right now. Look at verses 19 to the first part of verse 22. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, 
and having a high priest over the house of Israel, let us. Let us. The writer of Hebrews wants us to do these things. And the writer of Hebrews has ended his teaching on doctrines and new covenants. Now he's ready to bring practical application, practical exhortations, practical teachings based on that doctrine. He's basically saying, because of all this doctrine, all these truths, all this teaching I have just given you, let us do these things now. Let us apply these truths. Let us apply this doctrine. Let us use this teaching. Let us apply this teaching in our life. Let us start living out the way I have just given you. Let us start living out the truths I have just given you. The writer's first practical instructions come in a form of seven let us invitational commands or exhortations. And I think it's I think it's I think it's important to note that these are the first ones he gives us after teaching all that doctrine. After teaching all the doctrine. The first thing he wants to get to as far as application or things that we can practically put into to work in our life or an effect in our life is these seven things. And this is all after all that doctrine. It's almost like he wanted to get through this doctrine so he could hurry up and give us these things. He wants us to have these things. So number one, let us draw near to God, verse 22. Let us draw near to God. Number two, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. That's verse 23. Hold fast to our profession of faith. Number three, let us provoke one another unto love, verse 24. So we're to provoke. One another unto love, not gently nudge one another unto love. We have to provoke one another unto love. Verse four: Let us provoke one another unto good works. Again, not just gently nudge or or suggest every now and then. We are to provoke one another unto good works. Verse twenty-four. Number five: Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, or in other words, let us be very faithful in our church attendance. Verse twenty-five. Number six: Let us exhort one another. It's also verse twenty-five. And the seventh one. And we are to be doing all of this let us in so much the more as we get closer to the Lord's return. As we get closer to the time of the end of this age. We are to be so much the more in in our let us in, are we? We are to be so much the more in in our let us in, are we? We are to be faithfully and aggressively living out this list. This list that it took the writer of Hebrews nine and a half chapters to get to. He wanted to build up. He wanted to make sure we had that proper doctrinal foundation. And then immediately he gives us this list. Are we drawing nearer and nearer to God in our Christian walk? Are we praying like we should? Are we reading our Bible every day, if not multiple times each day? Are we drawing nearer and nearer to God in our Christian walk? Are we holding fast our profession of faith? Are we standing strong in our beliefs, on our truths? Are we standing strong on what the Word of God says? Or, like we have plenty of examples of, compromising here and there, overlooking this here and there, letting this go, letting that go. We see that in churches all around us. Or are we holding fast our profession of faith? Are we provoking one another unto love? That provoke is not doesn't mean just a gentle nudge. It means you're provoking. You're provoking. You're, you're aggressively trying to get somebody provoking one another into love. Are we provoking one another into good works? Again, not just a gentle nudge. Are we provoking one another into good works? Are we faithfully attending all the church services? Are we there every time the door opens? Are we exhorting 
and encouraging one another. Are we doing all this, let us in, so much the more in? Like verses 19 and 21. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of Israel. The writer of Hebrews is basically saying, because of all I have taught you, again, in the previous nine and a half chapters, because of the boldness we have to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, because of all this new covenant provides us, all the new covenant blesses us with, all these great things about the new covenant, because of this access we now have to God, because we have that great high priest as our intercessor, because of all this doctrine, all this truth, all this wonderful doctrine and truth I've spent, I've painstakingly explained to you over the last nine and a half chapters, because of all this, now let us be this. Let us have these things in our life in abundance. Let us live out this list. Let us be known for these things. So number one, let us draw near to God, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The first invitational command, application, exhortation is to worship Christ in confidence. And if we do that, that it pleases God. Worshiping Jesus brings you into the Holy of Holies, and by the blood that Christ carried in there, you are welcome to approach the Father there. By Jesus' sacrifice in our place, we have a way to move beyond the veil. Remember upon his death, that curtain was ripped in twain. He opened the way through his death, his shed blood. We have a way to move beyond that veil. Our high priest is seated at the right hand of God, intercessing for us, representing us. So you, you may be standing or seated in a little storefront church in Palm Coast, Florida. Or you could be at your home, your car, your work, your bedroom. But when you direct your heart towards God in thanks and adoration, you're spiritually entering the holiest place in all creation. You are literally standing before the Father, and He is hearing you. That's just an amazing thought. That's amazing. He is pleased with you, forgetting your sin, welcoming you into His presence. No, no need to hang on to that guilt over those sins that are under the blood. No longer to hang on to that guilt, because the sacrifice of Christ has assured us that our audience is there. We have that forgiveness. Therefore, knowing all this, let us draw near to Christ. Notice that first part of verse 22, let us draw near. That phrase in the Greek was commonly used as call a congregation to worship. The writer says that because of all we see promised in the scriptures, we have every reason to engage in sincere and confident worship of Christ. We can boldly approach him. We can boldly serve him. We can boldly work for him. That guilt no longer needs to be hanging on to us. We can boldly enter in that worship, that prayer for worship. We don't have to worry about that guilt of our sins if they are forgiven. And we know they're forgiven on the cross, but have we confessed them? First John 1 John 1.9 The writer is telling us that unlike the Old Covenant, which never granted a clean conscience to the worshiper, we now know the feeling of having been made acceptable to God. We can and should know the feeling of a clean conscience toward God. Let's not ever forget the simple truth of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Number two, let us hold fast the profession of our faith, verse 23. Profession of our faith, verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, 
for he is faithful that promise. Now we reach uh, the concern that led this writer to explain so much doctrine over the last several chapters. He's concerned that some in this church are wavering in their faith. These are Christians who entered into the covenant by faith, but now they are wavering. Now they are doubting, pulling away maybe. that The cause of their wavering was a lack of understanding of the doctrine of the new covenant. Remember back in chapter 6 when we studied that? Uh, they said they were not progressing. They were still babes. They still needed the milk when they should have been on to the meat by now. They had need again for explanation of the basic doctrines of faith. And now we see just how serious that lack of understanding had become for their walk. They were in danger of retreating from a proper worship of Christ. They were in danger of not holding fast their profession of faith. Their lack of knowledge was leading them astray, was leading them to some seri- serious error. They were not holding fast their profession of faith. Now, don't miss this connection. This is important. If we fail to pursue spiritual maturity, we are bound to fall back into one trap or another of the enemy. If we fail to pursue spiritual maturity, we are bound to fall back into one trap or another of the enemy. We may fall prey to uh, worship in one form or another that's not godly worship. We may be convinced that works are required. We may allow the accuser of the brethren to keep us perpetually guilt-ridden and feeling like we, have, we could be of little use to the Lord because of something in our past that's already been forgiven. We may even stray so far be caught, be caught into a false religious system of some kind. And these Hebrew believers were doing that. They were falling back to the Old Covenant. And knowing doctrine is our defense, we must always be growing in our knowledge of the Lord. Always learning, always growing. Second Peter three seventeen eighteen. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Number three, let us provoke one another unto love. Verse twenty four. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love. The writer says we must consider ways. To stimulate, provoke one another unto love. The power of a strong church uh, encourages the hurting, encourages those that are discouraged at their weakest. Uh, we need to find ways to provoke others unto love. Sometimes it takes more than just a little gentle nudge to provoke somebody unto love. Love sometimes in action can hurt the one giving that, that loves. When you discipline, it hurts sometimes it hurts the, the parent more than it does a child. We need to provoke unto love. Sometimes that provoking needs to be a little bit sterner than perhaps we are comfortable being. Maybe we don't like conflict. Let's just smooth this over. But provoking unto love, maybe a little conflict might be necessary to provoke someone unto love. Uh, number four, let us provoke one another unto good works. Let us consider one another provoke unto love and to good works. We are to be provoking one another to get busy if we are not working for the Lord unto good works. We should be serving in ministry. The Lord has given great vision for our church, great groups we want to start. We need to be willing to accomplish the vision the Lord has given us. Let us provoke. Let us strongly encourage each other to get busy. Working for the Lord. Time is short. Time is of the essence. We're running out of time. We've got to get busy. 
We've got to get busy fulfilling the Great Commission. We've got to get busy reaching out in, in new, creative, different ways. We've never done that before. We never had the, the, those kind of groups at a church we went to before. Doesn't mean it's wrong. Let's get busy. Let's get busy. There's been countless studies. The greatest time to reach somebody for the Lord when they're hurting, when they're down. They're most open for the Lord. Well, don't you think those that have just gone through a divorce, don't you think they're hurting? We can reach them for the Lord. Single mom struggling to make ends meet, pulled in different directions, they're a little bit hurting. We can meet them, give them Christ. Those that are grieving, they're hurting. We can meet them and give them Christ. Those that are battling addiction, we can meet with them and give them Christ. Just because it's never been done that way before doesn't mean it's not right. It doesn't mean that other churches shouldn't be doing it as well. We need to get busy serving the Lord. Get busy working for the Lord. James tells us, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show thee my faith by my works. May be workers for the Lord. May be workers for the Lord. Next, number five. Let us be very faithful in our church attendance not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Notice in verse 25, the writer says, some were already forsaking the gathering. Uh, they were forsaking the assembling together. He means that some believers had given up on the, on the Christian gathering altogether. More likely, they returned to worshiping at the temple under the Old Covenant. They, 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 used, to, they used to do that, the unworking the covenant. They've just gone back to what they used to do. Notice what their unfaithful church attendance led to. And they weren't there, so they weren't working in a ministry. Uh, they weren't helping. They weren't fulfilling the Great Commission. So logically, that means souls were going unministered to. People weren't getting saved. That wasn't happening. It led them into doctrinal error. They walked away from the truth. It led them to forsaking what they once believed. It led them to denying the sufficiency of Christ. I need more than that. I need the Old Covenant. I need those rituals. It led them down a road that led them farther and farther away from truth, farther and farther away from Jesus, farther and farther away from doing the things they were told to do. Unfaithful church attendance is not a healthy thing. It, leads, it can lead to backsliding, lead to uh, distancing ourselves from Jesus and from fellow believers. It, it makes us more susceptible to believing the father of lies. Number six, let us exhort one another. Verse 25, but exhorting one another. Now, Matthew Poole, I'll read a quote here. He said, exhorting was to include this, counseling, reproving, encouraging, and comforting one another, so as they might persevere in performing the duties for which they assembled, according to Christ's mind and will, so as to strengthen each other's hearts and hands in the faith. Now, this message that I wrote, I wrote primarily, I told you a couple weeks ago, I had an opportunity to just sit by the river, by the waterfront in Jacksonville. One morning, I had a couple hours. This is one of those messages the Lord gave me as I was sitting there, just sitting by the river, reading my Bible. And that's where most of this message came from. I love that. I love when He gives me something that's so strong that I really can't get it down fast enough. I love that. And that's, this is one of those messages. Um, so we need to exhort one another. We are to exhort one another. The word translated as exhorting is from the uh, Greek word parakaleo, 
which means to call near, to invite, to invoke by imploring, to beseech, to call for, to be of good comfort, to desire, to give an exhortation to, to entreat, or to pray for. We are to call on each other. Call each other. Implore each other to do what is biblically right. We are to beseech each other to live faithfully to the Lord. We are to be good comfort to each other. We are to desire the best Christian sanctified life that we each other can possibly have. And we are to do some provoking in there. I always think of provoking is more of like a, come on, not just, oh, you can do it. No, it's kind of like, you need to be doing this. We need to provoke people. Um, we are told we are to entreat each other to live and work right for God. We are to pray for each other. All that and more is what's meant by exhorting one another. That was, those two words mean a whole lot. Are we doing all of that? Are we doing all that exhorting faithfully? I, I think we all could do more. I think we all maybe are a little bit hesitant to do some provoking that may need to be done. I think we all can do some more. Now to wrap things up, we're going to look at that seventh one. We're to be in all of this that we just went over. We're doing all of this let us in so much the more in. All of this let us in so much the more in. Look at verse 25 again. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. All this let us in. We're to be doing so much the mooring. We are to be faithfully and aggressively living out these things. Are we? Are we drawing nearer and nearer to God? Are we holding fast our profession of faith? Are we provoking one another unto love? Are we provoking one another unto good works? Are we faithfully attending church? Are we, are we working supporting the ministries? Are we exhorting and encouraging one another? Are we letting go of that guilt that the devil likes to keep piling back up on us? What matters is what God says, and he says if you confess it, you're forgiven. We've been cleansed from sin. We should have no more conscience of sin. We've been washed in the blood. There should be no more remembrance again made of sins in our life. Are we letting go of that? Are we doing that? Are we so much the more in our let us in and let go in? Of our guilt. Are we so much the more in our let us in and let going of our guilt? Are we living that kind of Christian life? Are we that dedicated to the work of the Lord? If we all were so much the more in, all this let us in, all this let going of the guilt in our life. Imagine what the Lord could do through us with this church. Imagine. I pray I can be this. I see reading this, I've got, I've got things I need to work on. I pray all of us could, could notice things we've got to work on in our life. But we could all be so much the more in this let us and let go in of that guilt that's already been forgiven. That the devil just keeps trying to pile back into our minds and, and on our shoulders. Are we on fire for God, for our Lord and Savior? Are we so much demoring our let us see? Lord, we thank you for this morning, Lord.